The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. series called Kingdom Manifesto. We are on week three. We are going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're continuing it today. So if you have your Bibles, turn them uh, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Get out your Being Transformed journal. Get ready to take some notes. If you've got your journal, let me see it. Wave it at me. Awesome, awesome. If you don't have a journal and you're like, what's that, what's that journal? I want a journal. You can get one after the service. They're in the lobby. It's a free gift for you. This is a tool that we designed in-house to help the New Song Church family to grow in spiritual disciplines like daily abiding in God's word and transformational community and prayer. So pick one up. How many of you have been enjoying the deep dive, the slow burn through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7? We asked our staff to read through the Sermon on the Mount every day as we're in this series. It's a 10-week-long series. Um, And I've been reading a paraphrase of the sermon every day, and I love how the paraphrase ends because this is how I feel when I get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 28 through 29, it says it like this. When Jesus finished this message, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd applauded and exclaimed, this is the best teaching, and he's living every word of it. Jesus is awesome. Somebody say, Jesus is awesome. awesome. I want to be his disciple. The crowds were amazed at this teaching, and I hope as we work our way through the series that by the time we get to the end of it that you share those same sentiments. It really is a masterful teaching. It's been said that if you took all the good advice for how to live ever uttered by any philosopher, psychiatrist, or counselor, you took out the foolishness and you boiled it all down to the real essentials, here's what you would be left with, a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. Now, the sad thing is there's a lot of Christians that I have uh, I've, I've, I've noticed, especially in non-denominational circles, that we don't value this great teaching of Jesus. We don't read it very often. We couldn't even tell you where it was found in scripture. But most importantly, we can't articulate the heart of this sermon. Like this kingdom manifesto, if somebody says, what's the Sermon on the Mount all about? We'd be like, uh, 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 which is not good, right? We need to know what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus' greatest teaching. The Lumineers are one of my favorite bands, and they have this song called Democracy. And in it, they have this lyric that says, from the staggering account of the Sermon on the Mount, which I don't pretend to understand at all. And I get that, they're not followers of Jesus, whatever, take that stance. But as followers of Jesus, I think that's a a pretty devastating stance to take. The Sermon on the Mount, which I don't pretend to understand at all, or I don't make any effort to understand at all. This is the Kingdom Manifesto. We need to be reading these teachings of Jesus often, regularly, slowly, carefully. We need to be praying through this sermon, conversing with the Lord about it, meditating on it, contemplating it, journaling what's the Holy Spirit saying to me and what am I going to do with what he's saying to me. And we need to be living it out, not just hearing it and memorizing it and meditating on it, but living it out in our daily lives. It's a sermon on the mount. It's the kingdom manifesto. It's the declaration of the kingdom. And it is my conviction that as followers of Jesus that we ought to know it inside 
and out. So if somebody were to tell you or ask you, if I meet the Lumineers in Tulsa, when I go see them in August, and they're like, what is the Sermon on, uh, Sermon on the Mount all about? I want to be able to articulate it. So you can write a couple of these down. This teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, is all about the spiritual implications or the byproduct, the outcome, the result of the rule of Jesus in our lives. Another way you could say it is it's about how regarding Jesus as king. Okay, you got real excited about your moms. I need you to get really excited about this. Who regards Jesus as king? Let me see. Okay. Jesus is king. Let me see your hands. Is Jesus your king? Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. So Jesus is king. And how many know if you regard Jesus as king, that has to translate into your daily living. That's what this sermon is about. And it's a sermon for all. Jesus is not like Buddha where he had one teaching, one doctrine that was for just the elite few. And then another doctrine that was for everybody. Jesus had one doctrine and it was for the masses. He taught this sermon to a really large crowd on gently rolling pastures by the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew tells us who was in this crowd. Check this out. (laughs) Ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. This is quite a crowd, right? Ushers were busy. They were busy that day. Uh, But Matthew, he wants us to know that this crowd was not primarily a religious group or a respectable group. There were some Pharisees and teachers of the law, the disciples were there, but mostly it was just everyday common people, those who were despised by the establishment as foreigners and as sinners. So what on earth is Jesus doing, bringing the kingdom manifesto to a crowd such as this? I'll tell you what he is doing. He is wrecking the order of the day. He's wrecking the order of the day and he is flinging wide open the doors to the kingdom of heaven saying all who will hear can come to me for eternal life, eternal living. Dallas Willard, he's one of my favorite teachers on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the aim of the sermon is to help people come to hopeful and realistic terms with their lives here on earth by clarifying in concrete terms the nature of the kingdom into which they are now invited by Jesus' call, repent for life in the kingdom is now one of your options. Whoa. It's now one of our options in the Sermon on the Mount tells us how to live in it. What an invitation, right? What an option. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Kingdom Manifesto. This is why we love it so. This is why we have dedicated 10 weeks to studying it and are inviting you to study it with us now for the text. If you would, stand to your feet. We are going to read God's word together. Just get yourself in a posture saying, I honor the word. I honor your word, God. I believe it is alive. I believe that it is active. I believe it's worthy of my full attention and devotion. I'm not going to just check out, but I'm going to lean in. Aren't you glad we're a church that will preach the whole world word? Because a lot of people are like, yay, beatitudes, yay, salt and light, skip over this, get to the do not worry about anything part. We're going to preach through the word. Okay, Matthew 5, here's the text. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for this sermon that's here for us today. We thank you for the option of walking and living in the kingdom here and now. Lord, I pray that you meet us. We say we want you here. We want you here, God. We want to hear from you. I pray that you would make the, the soil of our hearts fertile so that as the seed is scattered, that it would find a resting place in our hearts, that the roots would go down deep, that it would be nourished, God, by us as we leave this place. Let us nourish it. Let us water it so that it can grow, so that it can produce fruit, not only in our lives, but in generations to come, Lord. May we behold you. May we behold your glory and be transformed into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, I want you to imagine with me that you are here, that you are part of this massive crowd that is listening to the Sermon on the Mount. You found a seat, you got your blanket, you're on the rolling pastures by the Sea of Galilee. You are definitely not one of the up and in in the crowd. You're more one of the down and out. You're just like an everyday common person, but you're intrigued by the ministry of Jesus, so you're there. And you are enjoying listening to the most brilliant mind ever deliver the most brilliant teaching ever. And right off the bat, Jesus begins and he is just blowing your mind. He is talking about how the kingdom of heaven is open to people just like you. People who are poor in spirit. People who are meek. People who are hungry and thirsty for something different. And then he proceeds to say that anyone with an earshot is the salt of the earth and the light of the world, like everyday people like you, he's inaugurating this new kingdom and saying it's open to you and you nudge your friend who also is just enjoying this message and you say, I, this is amazing. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. This guy, Jesus, like, I think like, this is so inclusive. He's inviting all of us and maybe finally someone who's going to cut through all the law, cut through all that legalistic stuff. Like, this is awesome. And then Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And right here, you're tempted for just a second to like get up and walk away because the law that you have in mind, if you're being honest, the law that you brush up against every day, the law that you rub shoulders against every day, things like the Pharisees tithing their spices and the hand-washing rituals and the cup-washing nonsense and the Sabbath extremes, the law that you have in mind is a bummer. It is exhausting. It is oppressive. It is crushing. It is harsh. And you would love for it to be abolished. Like you kind of thought maybe this is where Jesus was steering this thing. You thought he was going to set the law aside, but that's not what Jesus does. He said, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then 
Then Jesus drops his signature line, for truly I say to you, for truly I say to you, and hungry for truth. You want somebody who will, who, will, who will tell you the truth. You decide to stay and your ears perk up as he continues until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You're starting to see that he is pretty serious about fulfilling the law. Like every I dotted, every T crossed, nothing missing, nothing broken, nothing left undone. He goes as far as to say, I'm going to not only fulfill every word of the law, but I'm going to fulfill every letter of every word of the law. And I'm not just, I'm not just going to fulfill every letter of every word of every law. I'm going to fulfill every mark on every letter of every word of the law. I have not come to set it aside. I have come to fulfill it all of it. And you're beginning to sense that the law is kind of essential to this kingdom that Jesus is inviting us to, but you're still not super pumped because again, when you think of the law, the law that you have in mind is not the moral law handed down from God. It's, you're not thinking about the 10 commandments. You're not thinking about the love your neighbor laws. You're not thinking about the law in Deuteronomy to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You're thinking about the ceremonial, the civil, and mostly you're thinking about the, the ritualistic law that the Pharisees have added to the moral law. You're thinking about the people that you know that literally take like three hours to prepare a dinner salad because they are individually counting out sesame seeds. Okay, 50 sesame seeds, set aside five for my tithe to the Lord. This is what you have in mind. You look around the crowd, see who's like engaged, see, see what other people are thinking, and you spot some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law who earlier had their arms folded and they seemed annoyed at Jesus talking about how the kingdom of heaven was open to those poor in the spirit. They seemed annoyed when Jesus was saying that these everyday regular people could be the salt of the earth in the light of the world, but now their disposition shifts a little bit and they seem to be getting excited, like kind of on board with what Jesus is talking about. You continue to watch them as Jesus continues to preach. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You're still watching the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law and you see these smug smiles adorn their faces. They're feeling pretty good about this because they teach the law and they obey the law and they happen to love being called great. So this is right up their alley. They're like, come on, preach Jesus. They want to be greater than everyone else, which is why they have taken God's moral law and made it something so burdensome. Instead of giving God's law as food and drink for us to banquet on God, they have instead turned it into bundles of rules. They've packaged the law into bundles of rules. They've set it upon people as pack animals, watching them struggle under the burden to try to keep the law, never thinking of lifting a finger to help. Suddenly you see their disposition shift, like, hold on, they're not smiling anymore, and now they start to look kind of embarrassed and uncomfortable and they start to blush a little bit and you're like, what did I miss? You were too busy thinking about how terrible these guys are that you missed what Jesus said next. So you ask your friend like, what did I miss? What did he say? Why are they like kind of getting uncomfortable? And she says, 
He said, unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you think, whoa, what a heavy hitter this Jesus guy is. But you think you might be getting at what he's getting at. That the righteousness of the Pharisees, although it was impressive, it wasn't enough. That their hand washing, their cup washing, their ability to perform the law, the goodness of the most good was not good enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking to a righteousness that goes beyond the Pharisees, a righteousness that goes beyond the teachers of the law, that surpasses theirs. So you're kind of internalizing and you've got some questions, like you want to enter into this kingdom that is now one of your options, but how will you be able to have a righteousness that surpasses these who have made it their life's work? And if Jesus came to fulfill the law, then what part does the law have to play in my life? Now, I want to invite you back to Edmond, Oklahoma, 2022. Say goodbye to the rolling pastures. Come back. The dog food smell is around. (laughs) Not the Sea of Galilee. We're back. We're back in Edmond. And I want to invite you to journey with me through scripture these next couple of minutes to answer some of these questions that arise as we read this text. The first one being, how did Jesus fulfill the law? This is super cool. I was totally geeking out about this the last couple weeks. Uh, This series is called The Kingdom Manifesto, right? And we understand it's all about life in the kingdom. Jesus uses the term kingdom eight times in this message. It's about how regarding Jesus as king should translate into our daily life. So the Sermon on the Mount is the speech of a king. If you have your Bibles, your paper paper Bibles, write that by Matthew 5. The king's speech. The Sermon on the Mount is the king's speech. The book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, he starts off emphasizing Jesus in relation to King David. He says, uh, identifies Jesus as the son of David. He is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Matthew talks about Jesus being king of the Jews, ruler from Judah, sent to shepherd Israel, the shepherd king. Who else was a shepherd king? David. Good. So Matthew wants us to get a clear picture in our heads as Jesus as king. The Sermon on the Mount is a king's speech, okay? So, but what does this have to do with Jesus fulfilling the law? And this is kind of hard for us to understand because people who have been placed in king-type positions, presidents, governors, mayors, DAs, police officers, chief of police, judges, different people uh, 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 all throughout our history. They have not had the same relationship to the law as kings in ancient times were supposed to have with laws. They live kind of like above the law. That was not how it was with ancient kings. Ancient kings concerning the law were to do three things. They were to give the law. They were to embody the law internally or to personify the law, to live it so much that you could not separate that person from the law. And number three, they were to produce good legislation that transforms the people and leads them into obedience of the law. We're gonna see about that legislation next week. Patrick Schreiner says, kings were to be living embodiments of the law who instructed through both teaching and example what it means to follow the law. As the king goes, the nation goes. Jesus is the Davidic king who becomes the living law. 
He's not to just be seen as a prophet or a really great teacher, but as the king who fulfilled the law, every part of it, every letter of every word, every mark of every letter of, of, uh, of every word, he fulfilled every part of the law by living every part perfectly of God's moral law. A virtuous king must not only submit to the law, but he has to personify it so much that he becomes a law animated. He must become a wise copy of the things that the law commands. The law visualized so much so that now the king's subjects, that's you and I, can imitate the law that they have seen their king perfectly live out. How many of you have ever seen uh, Pixar's Inside Out? I love that movie. It's so brilliant. I think they did a really fantastic job at showing us the power of personification of taking something that seems really abstract and hard to wrap our minds around and making it more concrete by perfectly personifying it, by animating it, by bringing it to life. Like we know about our emotions, we can read about our emotions in a textbook, we even experience our emotions on a daily basis. We have memories that pop up into our mind, but it's kind of this abstract thing. We don't really know how it all works. But when you see these emotions so perfectly personified, anger, disgust, joy, sadness, and fear behind those control panels of Riley's brain, you see the core memories coming up. Like It helps you to take this abstract thing and understand it in a more concrete way, understanding it on a deeper level. This is the power of personification. A good king knew that the law had to be more than words on a page. The king had to be the law personified, and Jesus was the law personified, taking this hard-to-wrap-our-mind-around-thing. Not just the law, but God's heart, God's intentions behind the law and perfectly personifying it so that we can wrap our minds around it, so that we can understand it on a different level, so we can see it and live it out in our own lives. He was not only, Jesus was not only the new Moses going up to give the law, he is the new king. He's the new King David fulfilling the demands of the law in such a way he could say, imitate me. And we see our king, we see King Jesus several times in the gospel of Matthew, not only teaching the law, but personifying it, but animating it, but bringing it to life for us. He doesn't just say, hey, you subjects, you should be merciful. He shows us what it looks like. He is merciful. The king willingly touching a leper. The king stopping and and taking time for this unclean, the hemorrhaging woman. The king going into the house of a Gentile to raise a little girl from the dead. He doesn't just say, hey, you turn the other cheek. He embodies that. He personifies it. We see him live that out perfectly on the cross. He doesn't just say, hey, you guys pray God's will. We see him praying God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but yours be done. He doesn't just teach us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. He does the same. We see him personify, denying himself as he's being tested in the wilderness by Satan. If you have a notebook, write this down. Jesus did not come to set the law aside. He came to bring the law to life. He obeyed the law, embodied the law, thus perfectly fulfilling the law. He did what King David and no other king before or since would be able to do. He perfectly lived out the law. So the next question that we come to is, does the law need to be central to my life? If Jesus came and he fulfilled it and he did it so perfectly and he did it for us, 
then does the law need to be central to our life? The one word answer up front is yeah. Somebody say yeah. 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 But wait, Sarah, what about Galatians 2? Where Paul says, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus, not by obeying the law. He also says in Galatians 2 that when he tried to keep the law, it condemned him. So he died to the law. He stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that he might live for God. He also says that he didn't treat the grace of God as meaningless. I don't want to treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So if you read this at first glance, you're like, the law, keeping the law wasn't central to Paul's life, so it doesn't need to be central to my life. But you have to understand, Paul was not saying that the law was not good. Paul was not saying, you know what? Go ahead and murder Go ahead and have anger. Go ahead and lust. Commit adultery. Go ahead and have gods before the one true God in your heart. Idolatry. Just forget about the law. Set it aside. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he died to the law in the sense that the law was how he was going to be made right with God. The law is good. God's moral law is good. It is perfect. It is a trustworthy guide to help us fulfill all the plans and promises that God has for us. The law is a gift of grace. Write it down. The law is a gift of grace. Think about it. Every crisis, every um, horrible, atrocious thing that we have going on in our world right now, it could all go away instantly if everybody would just commit to following the moral law of God. It's a gift of grace, and it's the perfect expression of God's character and his requirements. But, somebody say, but... The law is not the door. The law is not the door. Keeping the law is not how we are made right with Christ. We are made right with Christ only by faith. We made right with God only through faith in Christ, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. We are only made right with God through Christ and through faith in him alone. So the Christian is done. You are done. Hear me, you're done with the law as the way of gaining right standing with God. But this does not mean that we set it aside, that we throw it away, or that we start teaching that because of grace, this command doesn't matter anymore, and that command doesn't matter anymore. Jesus said, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, hey, you see my law and you say, this one doesn't matter anymore. This one's really not that important anymore. You're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That seems kind of harsh, right? But Jesus is wanting us to know that the law is important. It's important. And if you start throwing away certain parts of the law, like honoring the Sabbath, like I can just work all day and all the time and work myself to death and that's old school and that's legalistic and I'm going to set it aside and I'm going to tell my small group that they don't have to do that anymore either. Guess what? You're going to be called least in God's kingdom. The law that God had given to Israel before Jesus appeared, it was the most precious possession of human beings on earth. They carried around in that ark. It was one of their most precious possessions. The commands in Deuteronomy to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The commands to love your neighbor, the 10 commandments. And Dallas Willard says, the people who were devoted to the law were ravished by its goodness and by its power, finding it to be the perfect guide into the blessed life in God. It was a constant delight to their mind and to their heart. 
It wasn't that burdensome thing that the Pharisees had turned it into in the New Testament. It was a delight. They were ravished by its goodness. And if you don't believe that, go read Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. And it is all about their love for the law. Jesus believed that God's law was unspeakably good that it was a precious thing and that to live within it is the way that you experience the God kind of life, Zoe life. He believed that it was good, that it was right. And this is why he was so adamant about fulfilling every part of it, not setting it aside, but fulfilling it. Dallas Willard says, to be sure, the law is not the source of rightness, but it is forever the course of rightness. It's not the source but it's our course. David Guzik says it like this. The law sends us to Jesus to be justified because it shows our inability to keep God's law, to keep to, or to please God in ourselves. So it sends us to him because we're like, I can't do this. I can't please him in my own strength. So we got to go to Jesus. But after we come to Jesus, Jesus sends us back to the law to learn the heart of God for our conduct how we are to conduct ourselves in this world. He sends us back to the law to learn the heart of God for our conduct and for our sanctification, for our being transformed. You want to be transformed in the image of Jesus? You ask Jesus, how, do, how can I be transformed into your image? He's gonna point you back to the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Watch your anger, watch your lust, guard your heart against these things. He's gonna point you back to the law. Jesus doesn't set the law aside and neither should we, our last question, how does one go beyond or surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? How does one go beyond? Jesus said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you have to understand that the equivalent for us, like them hearing this, would be equivalent to us hearing, unless your basketball skills surpass that of Michael Jordan, like last dance Michael Jordan, like in his prime Michael Jordan, which mine couldn't surpass his any, in any point. I couldn't surpass his toddler basketball skills, I'm sure. But it would be like hearing that unless your basketball skills surpass that of Michael Jordan, that you will not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. You'd just be like, yeah. Then like, what's the point? That's never gonna happen. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law had made this their obsession, their life's work, keeping the law. But Jesus said that they didn't have it all figured out. Matthew 23, one through three, I love this. Jesus has this like sneaky thing about him where it's like he's going one way and the Pharisees are like, yeah, tell him. And then he's, they're like, oh no, like I did not see that coming. This is one of those moments. He says, then Jesus, it says, then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. And they're like, yeah, we are. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. Uh-huh. But don't follow their example. And they're like, for they don't practice what they teach. The Pharisees knew the law better than anyone else knew the law. We need to know the law. We need to understand the law, not just understand the law, like the black and white, but we need to understand God's heart, his intent behind the law that he gave. And I've said it this way all three services, 
But this is kind of like primer. This message is I'm throwing up a couple of coats of primer. And I know you're not like, yay, look at the primer. Next week, Pastor Josh is going to come and he's going to put on the paint, okay? He's going to talk to us about, the, about God's heart, his intent. He's going to talk to us about how, how our, uh, what's the word, our, our um, motivation, the motivation that we have in our heart how that matters more than just the outward action. So we need to understand the law. We need to understand God's heart behind the law, but we have to go beyond that. We have to go beyond behavior modification, and we have to go beyond image management. That's what the Pharisees had become obsessed with, is image management. Paraphrase of Matthew 5.20 that I've been reading, it says it like this, unless our approach to goodness goes far beyond the religious respectability of the scholars and the teachers of the law, not focused merely on doing the right actions, but on relying on God. They were not relying on God. They were just about their outward image, their outward actions, doing the right actions so everybody could see. They were not relying on God to work in their heart to develop true inner goodness. Then we won't be able to participate in the life-giving flow of God's eternal kingdom. So how do we go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees? Two thoughts as we close. The first one is we quit relying on our righteousness. We quit relying on our righteousness. Paul writes in Philippians that he was faultless. He was faultless. Another way to say that is perfect. He was perfect when it came to righteousness based on the law. I mentioned last night that I, I don't know anything about the Enneagram, so I can't tell you what number Saul was, but I know he had to be high discipline. Like on Strength Finder, I bet his number one strength was discipline. And a friend messaged me last night. She was like, he was a one. Tell everybody he was a one. So... <laughs> If you know Enneagram, I guess Saul was a one. Uh, but his goodness was based on his ability, his discipline to keep the law. It was on his own righteousness, which wasn't really righteousness at all. It was impressive outwardly. But Jesus said, it's like a whitewashed tomb. He talked about this in his woes to the Pharisees. Later in Matthew, he said to them, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful. Tombs back then were innate, ornate, like architectural masterpieces, works of art. He says, you look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. Outwardly, Paul was getting it done, all the right actions, keeping the law, ticking the boxes, but inwardly, he was dead. He was filled with deadness, uncleanness. Think about what's inside of a tomb. It's gross, dead bones, decay, rot, maggots, smells, everything unclean. He was doing these actions, but what was going on internally? What was his motive behind the action? He was doing the right action, but inside there was pride, there was anger, there was frustration, there was pride, there was lust, there was more pride. He was filled with these things, bones of the dead and everything unclean. It wasn't until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The light came, and like Pastor Tondra preached so beautifully last week, light reveals, and light exposes, and, ex and exposed what was going on. It ex exposed what his righteousness really was, nothing more than soiled rags. 
And he had to come to terms with the fact that he couldn't save himself. His works, his actions, his discipline, his law keeping, it would never open the door to the kingdom of heaven. There is only one door. Jesus said, I am the door. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Philippians 3, 9. It says, in that I may actually be found and known as in him. That's like a goal for my life. At my funeral someday, I want people to say that I was found as in him. I was found, I was in him, I was known as in him. I want to be known as found in him. I want to be known as in Christ. She was in Christ. That's what Paul wanted, that I may actually be found and known as in Christ. How do we do that? Not having any self-achieved righteousness that can be called my own based on my obedience to the law's demands, ritualistic uprightness, and supposed right standing with God thus acquired. But here's how we're found and known as in him, possessing the genuine righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the anointed one, the truly right standing with God, which comes from God by saving faith, by saving faith in the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. I think this is a good question to ask ourselves today and often is, do I have any righteousness that I think can be called my own? Uh, Are there any... Is there any pharisaical thinking that has crept into my consciousness? Things like I am made right with God because I am on the kids team. I serve in kids or it makes me more right with God or I earn some brownie points with God or, or, or I am made right with God because I never miss a day of my being transformed journal. I read every day. I do the required reading. I check the box or I'm made right with God because I worship. I raise my hands. I, I show up to midweek prayer. I'm made right with God because I tithe. I'm made right with God because my parents have some legacy in, in the faith world. I'm made right with God because of this action or that action, all good things, but none of those things can make us right or more right with God. It's righteousness through faith in Christ alone. So we have to stop leaning on our own righteousness, relying on our own righteousness. And I keep putting it in quotations because there is no such thing as our righteousness. It just doesn't exist, right? My righteousness is not righteousness at all. Number two, we have to adjust our aim. If we want to go beyond, if we want to go beyond the goodness and the righteousness of the Pharisees, we have to adjust our aim. Listen, if your aim is keeping the law, you're going to keep breaking the law. If your aim is keeping the law, you will keep breaking the law. Or let me say it like this. We cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. If we want to obey God, if we want to show him that we love him, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We have to aim at something other. We have to aim at something higher, something more than just keeping the law. We have to set our sights on being transformed into the image of Jesus. The aim is not keep the law, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. Don't stumble, don't sin. Keep the law, keep the law. The aim is Jesus. The aim is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The Pharisees were so focused on keep the Sabbath, tithe the spices, who's fasting, who's not, who's not fasting. Did they wash their hands the right way? Did they clean the cup on the outside or the inside? You should eat this. You should not eat that. They were so focused on keeping the law. That was their aim. And you know what happened? They totally missed the Messiah. Yeah. 
They totally missed the Messiah who was there among them in the flesh and blood. If my aim is to be perfect in all of my ways, then I will too, for sure, miss out on the Messiah. Our aim is Jesus. Our aim is knowing Jesus. Our aim is being with Jesus. Our aim is apprenticing under Jesus as a disciple. Our aim is doing the things that Jesus did. Our aim is believing the things that Jesus believed. Our aim is his presence where we are helped, where we are guided, where we are instructed in every aspect of our lives. Our aim has to be Jesus. And when our aim is Jesus, here's what happens. We begin to be transformed into the kind of person who can routinely and naturally keep the commands. Aiming to keep the law will not change your nature. Only knowing Jesus can change your nature and a changed nature is what will move your goodness beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Ephesians 4.21 says, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned, somebody say learned. Learned. Somebody say learnt. Since you have heard about Jesus and you've learned the truth that comes from him, he says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, I love this, instead, Paul is like, don't do that, do this, choose this, not that. He says, instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, put on your new nature, created to be like God. Like God, created to be like God, church. Like, don't let that just wash over you. There's a new nature in you created to be like God, holy and righteous, truly righteous and holy. Paul says to this church at Ephesus, he says, you guys have heard about Jesus and you've learned about him. And when he says this word learned here, it's more than a head knowledge. It's a living and abiding knowledge of Jesus. It's not just, oh, I know about him. I can tell you some things about him, but I know him. It's a living and abiding knowledge. This is only possible to have this kind of living and abiding knowledge of Jesus if our aim is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says, if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we're here for to help people know God, to know him, not just know about him, but to know him. He says, if you wanna know the Lord Jesus Christ, you must live with him. First, he must himself speak to you when he calls you at salvation. And afterwards, you must abide in him. He must be the choice companion of your morning hours. He must be with you throughout the day. And with him, you must also close the night. And as often as you wake during the night, you must say, when I awake, I am still with thee. Some of you are like, well, that sounds like legalism. No, it sounds like love. It sounds like love. I love Jesus and I have chosen him to be my choice companion and I urge you to do the same. This is what Jesus as our aim looks like and this is what it leads to. It leads to us being able to put on this new nature created in us supernaturally the moment that we decided to make Jesus the Lord of our life. This new nature comes and it's in us. This new nature that is instinctively righteous and holy. It's instinctively righteous. It's instinctively holy. Do you ever feel like me that sometimes your instincts stink? You ever feel like that? Your instincts stink. Like, I just keep sinning here, keep messing up. I keep doing what I know is not right. I keep rebelling. 
Listen, if you feel like your instincts stink, it's because you aren't throwing off your old sinful nature. That you're not letting the spirit renew your mind and attitude. And let me just let you in on something. The spirit is not gonna come renew your mind and your attitude while you're binge watching Seinfeld. He's not gonna come renew your mind and your attitudes while you're playing video games. He's not gonna come renew your mind and your attitude while you're enjoying your hobby that you are so overtaken and obsessed with. He's not gonna come renew your mind and your attitude while you're on your phone, scrolling through Instagram, watching TikTok, whatever it is that we do. He's not just gonna come and be like supernaturally just giving you a new mind and giving you a new attitude and you walk, walk out of that binge Seinfeld se uh, uh, session and you're like, man, I just feel like so close to the Lord and he's helping me to just walk in love and forgive people. That's not how it works. We have to position ourselves. We have to put ourselves in a place where we say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm here. I'm here in your presence. I'm here with the word of God open. Renew my mind, renew my attitude. We have to position ourselves to let the spirit renew us. We keep going back to our old nature because we're not putting on our new nature. If you're born again, it's there. Your new nature is in you, but you have to choose to put that new nature on. You have to choose to live from your new nature. The new nature is Christ in you. Like we don't just sing about it. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ in me. We believe it because it's true. And Christ in us is how we go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. They didn't have that option of a new nature, but we do. Christ in us, Christ in you does not struggle with lust. Christ in you does not struggle with jealousy. He does not struggle with rage. He does not struggle with, with, with uh, idolatry or with jealousy or with uh, pride. He does not struggle with these things that we struggle with. We've got to live from this new nature that's made to be like God. But I see so many not living from this new nature. They're not putting it on. And I think it's because they've never truly made Jesus their aim. It's like, oh, I made heaven my aim. I made a, a good life here on the earth. I, I, I made pleasing my parents my aim. I made church community my aim. Like I thought like I got a good thing going on there. So I'm going to be saved so I can become a member of the, the church. But they never made Jesus their aim. And because they haven't made Jesus their aim, they haven't come to that living, abiding knowledge of him. They don't understand how amazing it is that we have his nature in us they don't appreciate it and they don't recognize it they don't they don't see the nature of Jesus they don't recognize it hanging on the clothing rack of their heart it's there to put on every morning and they just keep going right by it going back to their old sinful nature because it's comfortable because it's familiar oftentimes we are like the 40 year old dudes that keep going back to their Abercrombie cargo shorts summer after summer <laughs> from 1997 and slapping those things on. It's not right, but they do it because it's comfortable, because it's familiar, they recognize it, they've lived in it for a long time, so let's just slap these bad boys back on. The nature of Jesus is hanging on the clothing rack of your heart. But if you don't recognize the nature of Jesus, how are you gonna put it on? How are you gonna live from it? How are you gonna be comfortable in it? And it's not like all of a sudden you're gonna just know everything there is to know about Jesus. That's why we're, it's called being transformed. It's a process. But if you will start that process of I wanna know you for who you really are. I wanna understand your nature. When my kids are struggling, I'm saying, tell me a couple things about the nature of Jesus. What do you know about the nature of Jesus? Is that lining up? Are you living from that nature? 
What do you know about the nature of Jesus? This is like me taking you to the biggest clothing store you could ever imagine, like miles and miles, as far as the eye can see, racks of clothing of all styles, all brands, all colors, all shapes, all sizes from all cultures. There's belts, there's purses, there's, there's, there's blazers, there's suits, there's ties, there's all, all brands. There's Patagonia, there's Gap, there's Gucci, there's everything, just as far as you can see. And me saying to you, okay, go in there and put on a Wilbur Wilhoit outfit. And if you can put on a Wilbur Wilhoit outfit, then you can participate in the life-giving flow of God's kingdom. And they're like, okay, that sounds pretty sweet. But one problem, I don't know who Wilbur Wilhoit is. And I've tried to Google him and nothing. Like this person doesn't exist. Who is he? Can you tell me a little bit more about him? What does he do? What is he like? What kind of clothes does he wear? What's his profession? Like, explain to me. Tell me some things. Tell me a story about Wilbur Wilhoit. Like, help me get my mind wrapped around what kind of person this is so I can go in there and put on an outfit that represents him. Because I want to experience a life-giving flow of this kingdom of God. Listen, the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to help you understand the nature of Jesus. You come to the Holy Spirit and say, I want to experience a life-giving flow of the kingdom of God. I want to go beyond the goodness of the scribes and the Pharisees. I want to live for my new nature. Will you tell me who Jesus is? Will you tell me what he's done? Will you show me some stories about him? Will you help me to have an understanding of his nature so that I can live from that nature? Make Jesus your aim. Make Jesus your aim. Take seriously this amazing option that has been given to you for life in the kingdom here and now. Would you stand to your feet? Go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.